Well, this morning as we, uh, as I preach, y'all can pray for me. I've been sick all week, and you know, it's that sinus junk, and so I've been coughing. Uh, so I've given extra work for audio video people this morning as they try to silence me as I cough. But, uh, but it's so good to be here this morning. I, I, I love studying the Bible, and, and, and it was fall 1997, my first semester at seminary. And my wife and I, we had gone across the country from Texas to Kentucky, and I was excited. I was excited about starting seminary and the classes that I was going to be taking. And uh, one of the first classes that I had in seminary was a, a class on the gospel of Matthew. And uh, I was excited about it, prepared what I was going to learn. And in fact, I still have my notes from that class. These are my notes from that class. Yeah. And uh, the, the title of the class was called Matthew E.B. And I didn't understand what the E.B. was. And I, I found out E.B. stood for English Bible. I thought that was an odd name for a class, Matthew English Bible. Then I was to find out the reason they called it English Bible was because the primary text that we would be using was the English text. Would there be any other that I would use? I, I was a little nervous then. Because, not the Greek text. I had never looked at Greek ever in my life. I, I, I thought, uh-oh, I am in for a ride here at seminary. There's actually classes that don't use the English text as the primary source. How could that even be? I had no idea. But, uh, but it was a great class. It was, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Dr. Bauer was a professor. And, and, and I thought, I'm, I'm in for uh, an interesting ride here this semester. And, but week after week, we would look at the Gospel of Matthew. And we would study it. We would study certain phrases and sentences. We'd look at the book as a whole. Uh, we'd look. Uh, I did a paper on one word in the book of Matthew. A paper on one word. Serious. And 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 most of the time in class, I vacillated between being in awe of Dr. Bauer, the professor, and uh, also <laughs> not knowing what I was doing. Utter lack of understanding. Of anything, And it, it was a humbling experience, to say the least. Now, see, I, I went to Texas Tech University. I got my degree in accounting. I graduated with honors. But this class was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Uh, it was unbelievable. It was hard. Incredibly hard. Because I'd never really studied the Bible the way that they were teaching us to study the Bible. And I say all that to tell you, it's okay if you're studying the Bible and you feel lost, it's okay. You're among friends. Uh, it, it's okay if you don't know where to begin in studying the Bible. Uh, I tell you this story so you don't feel like you are not smart enough to understand. You're smart enough. It, sometimes it just takes hard work. It takes discipline. In fact, we've been looking at dealing with anxiety for the whole month of January. And what did I continually tell you over and over again when you're dealing with these things? It takes work. work. Yeah, some of you, you heard it. It's the same with studying the Bible. Sometimes it takes hard work. But, but, but that's okay. I want us to begin to discipline ourselves in studying the Bible. You know, some of us are doing the, the daily reading plan, and, and that's a great thing to do. All of, whatever reading you're doing is good, but sometimes what I'm talking about is really studying something uh, and studying maybe a book or a phrase or a passage or learning more and really digging in deeper. And, 
And so today and next week, we're going to be looking at some ways that we can truly study the Bible and some tools and tricks as well to help us along the way. So in my Matthew E.B. class, we use the inductive Bible study method. Now, this was a term I'd never heard before, inductive Bible study. And the basic premise of inductive Bible study is that you use the actual text of the Bible to help you in understanding the text. Makes sense? It sounds simple enough, but actually it, it can be difficult. Uh, let me tell you why. Where'd my Bible go? It's over here. How many of you have a, a, a study Bible? Any of y'all have a study Bible? Yeah. What's at the bottom of the study Bible? Each page. There's notes, right? You've got footnotes down there. So here's what a lot of times happens. You're, you're reading scripture and you come to a passage you don't understand. What do you do immediately? You go down to the notes, don't you? You're like, what, what does it say? You know, what, what does that happen? And But here's the thing about those notes. They're just someone's ideas about what the text means. They could be correct. They could be wrong. So, and, and you might be asking yourself, well, what's wrong with reading the notes? Well, really nothing is really wrong with reading those notes. But, but jumping to those notes before really looking at the text can give you a bias that maybe uh, you might not pick up on otherwise because you didn't do the hard work of actually trying to look at what the text actually says, not what someone else says it says. So inductive Bible study, though, takes work because you don't jump to someone else's conclusions first. You study the text on your own first. Then later on, you might look at someone else's notes. IBS, inductive Bible study, starts with the text and it stays with the text for a long time before moving on to someone else's ideas. With IBS, we, we wrestle with the text as it is and we try to read it without bringing our own bias to the text about what it says, but actually listening to what the text says to us. So we're not reading it, it it's, it's kind of reading us. So so often we come to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas about what it says, and we miss out because we're not really reading the text. We, come, we become blinded by our own ideas. So let me give you an example. The book of Genesis, chapter 1. The, it tells us the, the story of creation, right? God created the heavens and the earth, and each day you know, he's created things. And, and at the end of each day, what does the text say? And God blank that it was good. What's the word? What's the word? Put it up. What's the word? God saw that it was good. How many of you said said? Yeah. Own it. It's just a, a small thing. Said or saw? It's saw. God saw that the creation was good. What difference does it make? Well, it might or might not make a difference. But you see how we bring our own ideas to what the text says, and we don't really read it? We have our own bias without really observing what it says, and that might make a difference in how we interpret Scripture. So back to the IBS method. There are basically four steps when it comes to studying, really studying the Bible. And here they are. The first step is this, pray. 
It's a good step. We should approach Scripture in an attitude of prayer before we start. That's step one. Step two, observation. Step three, interpretation. Step four, application. And these are steps. You should actually do step one before you do step two, and step two before you do step three, and step three before you do step four in that order. <coughs> Excuse me. But we often get lazy, or I do anyway. I want to jump immediately to the interpretation part. I want to know what it, what it says without really observing it. And, and, and I often want to know what does it mean for me first before I do the hard work. But we need to spend some time praying first about what we are about to study. And why do we need to start with prayer? Because when we approach Scripture, we often approach it with our biases. We approach it with an idea about what we're trying to get out of it instead of it teaching us. So in prayer, we're, we're coming to God saying, God, as I read your, read your word today, help me. Help me to see with your eyes. Help me to read with, with your thoughts in mind. Help me to strip away anything that would keep me from really hearing what your word says. And, and Lord, as I'm, as I'm reading this text, help me to open my eyes to, to truly see. Strip away those biases in my life that, that keep me from really hearing you. We approach it with that humility, right? We don't approach it saying, oh, I know what it says and I'm going to prove it. No, we approach it with, God, what are you speaking to me? How can you speak through me? So we start with prayer. And so we pray for guidance, and then we move on to observation. So how do we do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. To observe, you really just have to read it and observe what it says. Simple enough, but it's, it can be difficult. Again, I take you back to the Genesis Sometimes we don't observe. We jump to conclusions. So we have to, to be alert to what the text actually says and ask ourselves questions about it. This is the time where you ask questions. We're not trying to answer the questions. We're just asking questions. So if we're doing a study on the book of Matthew right here, we might ask ourselves these questions as we're, we're going in. Who are the main characters? What kind of writing is it? Is it instruction? Is it... Narrative? Is it poetry? Is it parable? Where is the story taking place? What is being taught? Questions like that. There are all kinds of questions that we might be asking ourselves as we are reading, as we are observing, as we're starting. In the observation phase, it, it might require us to read through the text several times in order for us to truly observe what is going on. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've read something. I think I got it, and then I read it again. I'm like, oh, I missed that. And then I read it again, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I missed that too. And so reading over and over again. And <coughs> excuse me. And, and we don't want to rush through the observation phase. But that's my tendency. I want to rush through this. I'm going to get to good stuff is what I often tell myself. But it's in the observation phase that we both slow down and speed up. Let me, let me give you an example. So if we're studying the book of Matthew... Maybe we read through the book of Matthew two or three times quickly just to kind of get an idea of the overflow. And as we're reading, something might pop up and a question might pop up. We just write down the question. We're not answering the question. We're just, we're just going through. But maybe we're, we're starting in Matthew 1. And so we just start to do that, observe, ask questions. So 
Let's look at Matthew chapter 1 for a moment. If we don't approach it with a sense of openness and a a desire to truly observe, we can easily be discouraged. Because how does Matthew chapter 1 start? You know? Here it goes. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and so on, and so on, and so on. Wow. Could there be a more boring introduction than that? Really, Matthew, you're going to spend a whole chapter on the genealogy of Jesus? Why? What is the point? Really, I I mean, by the end of it, I'm sleeping. I'm just like, really, no more. Please, God, stop. What what relevance does it have for me today? You know, that's what I'm jumping to. What, What does this mean for me? Why? This has nothing, nothing for me. See, you see, that's my bias when I start reading Matthew chapter 1. And if you've ever started trying to read the New Testament, you're excited, you're all pumped up, you're ready to go, okay, Matthew chapter 1, here we go. You sit down and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through. If it's going to be like this, oh, I'm out. I am out. Because that's, that's the hard part. But we approach it with a bias. And you say to yourself, I, does this have any application to me? But if, but if we approach it a little differently, if in a way that seeks to observe first before saying, what does this mean to me, but observe, then we will have better luck with it. In fact, how many of you are reading uh, the Bible reading plan that we're doing right now? Right? Yeah. What do we start tomorrow? Leviticus. Lord, have mercy on your soul. If you don't go in with an observation-type mentality, you're in trouble. And in fact, if you haven't watched the videos, you better watch the Leviticus video. It will help you get through Leviticus. It's tough. It's coming. I'm warning you right now. But it's the same with this genealogy. We have to go in with the right attitude, the right mindset, not about starting with what does this mean to me, but what am I observing? And so we ask questions. And here's the thing. We don't have to have the answers. We just ask questions. Why does Matthew start with a genealogy? Why? I don't know. Why does he list the people he lists? What is the purpose of this? Who are the characters listed? What is the format of this chapter? Here are some of the questions we ask as we're approaching Matthew. See, we're observing, just asking questions first. We'll interpret and get to the other later, right? But if we move through the observation part too fast, we might miss out on some of the cool stuff. We'll come to that in a moment. So we've prayed, we've observed. Our next step is interpretation. So once we've observed the text, we're asking the questions, we go on to interpretation, and we would use the context of the passage to help us and what the whole book of Matthew says to help us in our interpretation. And this is where we might need some extra help. This is where we begin to ask ourselves, what do I not know? What do I just not have enough knowledge about so that I can get some more knowledge? 
And there's three specific references that I want to include that might help you with some background information. First is this, a concordance. The most famous, of course, is Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. What a concordance is, is it lists all the words in the Bible and where each word is used in the Bible. And that can be helpful, especially if you're trying to define or, or figure out a specific world, uh, word. So Matthew chapter 1 starts with this text, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. What does Matthew mean by Messiah? What does he mean? What, is it, what does that word mean? When Matthew uses that word, so you can go to a concordance, you can look up Messiah, and it will tell you everywhere in Matthew's gospel where Messiah is used. And then it'll tell you where it's used throughout the Bible. So you could do a study on Messiah in the New Testament, in Matthew, in the Old Testament, and see how other authors use that word Messiah. Because don't you think Messiah has some theological implication? Yeah. What does Matthew mean when he says Messiah? Is that different from what another author meant? I don't know, but we ask the question, and a concordance can help you in that study. A second uh, helpful tool is a commentary. What's a commentary? It's just someone else's ideas about how to interpret a text. And I would encourage you to use this last as possible, again, because just like your study notes at the bottom, your study notes are a kind of commentary. Someone else's thoughts on what this text means. Again, they could be right. They could be wrong. I believe I have seven commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew. Do you know that they don't all agree with each other? Shocking, isn't it? So what's correct? I don't know. But, but here's the thing. When, when you study it on your own, you get to learn some of the excitement of discovery, of getting insight from God. And if you just jump to someone else's idea, you lose out on that. You lose out on that sense of discovery, and, and you can get some bias that maybe you don't need that bias that can blind you to what it really says. But you can use a commentary, and it's a good way, especially if you've kind of formed your ideas about interpretation, you can come and approach it and say, what do they say? And you can agree or disagree based on the evidence that you've already studied. Third, a Bible dictionary. Again, it's just a dictionary of biblical terms. Again, you could look at the term Messiah and look it up in a Bible dictionary, and then it would tell you what that means in different contexts and help you in that study as well. A lot of times these you can find online now. We have them in our library here, if you ever want to use them. But you can find a lot of these tools online as well. Just helping you as you study, as you dig deeper. And it's in the interpretation phase that you're taking many of your questions that you did from the observation phase and answering them as best as you can. How does the structure of this passage inform my interpretation? Based on the evidence of, te- of the text, what is the, the purpose of the genealogy? Why? See, those are the questions we start answering in interpretation, but we don't do it until this third step. Our last step is the application, the application part. This step goes from what does the passage mean to what does it mean for me? How does this apply to my life? How does this apply to the church? It's in the application part that we really start looking at ourselves, placing ourselves in the text. And this, is, this can be fun, too. You know, you can place yourself in the text, especially this is where you can use your creative imagination, your God-given imagination. You might be reading a text about Jesus and his interaction with his disciples. 
and you just imagine yourself as one of the characters. Imagine you're Peter, and Jesus is chewing you out for what you've done. How would you feel? Uh, imagine you're Noah or Moses, and God is saying, go do this. How does that make you feel? You know, how does this apply to me? That's where you can use your creativity and imagination and take those interpretations and kind of inform who you are. So this is the basic idea of IBS. Prayer, observation, interpretation, application. So let's go back to Matthew 1, chapter 1. And again, let's approach it with a sense of prayer. Oh, God, we're going to need you in Matthew chapter 1 because I do not see how this applies to anything in my life. Why would you start a gospel with a genealogy? I don't see it, God. Help me see with your eyes. So we approach with prayer, and we, and we have an open mind to an observation. So <coughs> we start an account of the genealogy of Jesus. Let's go to the next slide. The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's stop right there. First sentence out of the, bank, out of the box. What do we observe? An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Hmm. I wonder if there's any theological implications in Matthew saying that Jesus is the Messiah. What might those be? I wonder if later on uh, Matthew's going to flesh that out more. What does Messiah mean? Why a genealogy? Why is that important? I don't know. Maybe I can look that up in a concordance. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does he mention those two, David and Abraham? What is son of David? I think I've heard that term before. Where else is that used? Son of Abraham. If you're doing our Bible reading plan, you've been reading about Abraham. So you kind of, hey, I know who Abraham is. We're not to David yet, but hey. And you start asking those questions. There's this Jesus the Messiah, that could be, maybe that's... The whole purpose of the whole book. Maybe it's just this genealogy. I don't know yet. But that has theological implications. Messiah. That's rich with theology. What does that mean? I don't know yet. We'll look at that later. But let's go on. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. Now, again, if you've been reading Genesis with us and Exodus, you, you, you kind of remember some of these names, right? And and And... Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Why did they list and his brothers? Who are the brothers? Anyone know? There are 11 of them, others. They're the 12, the 12 tribes. This is where we get the 12 tribes of, of Israel and his brothers. That might have implications for us, why they say and his brothers. And then it says, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Hey, look here. He broke the pattern again. Who's Tamar? Tamar's a woman. It's the first woman mentioned in this genealogy. Have you noticed anything so far about the genealogy? What is it? It's just men. Why would he list this woman? I don't know yet. But who's Tamar? Do you remember? We read about her in Genesis. Well, Tamar... Uh, was a widow that was supposed to, and Judah, her father-in-law slept with her, and uh, she was called righteous, more righteous than him, and called him out because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. 
Wow, scandal. <laughs> Introduced right here in the beginning. Scandal, this woman who is scandalous. Okay, interesting. Maybe we can learn more. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Again, if there's a pattern and there's a break in the pattern, pay attention. Why is there a break in the pattern? What's the break again? A woman. Why are they including women in this genealogy? It's a good question because you know most genealogies that are listed in a patriarchal society never mention a woman. It's always through the man. What is he doing here? This is in the interpretation part because you haven't gotten there yet. Why is he listing women? Shocking. But not just women, but these women. Who's Rahab? Prostitute. More scandal. In the genealogy of the Messiah, there's scandal. What can this mean for you? There's hope for you. <laughs> there's hope for your family. Is there scandal in your family? <laughs> Every family has scandal. There's hope for you. Women are listed in this genealogy. What is that doing? It's raising their status. Because most genealogies, they don't list the women. What's Matthew doing here? This might have theological implications, not just a genealogy. And then it says, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Do we know who Ruth is? You have a book about Ruth. You can read it. Find out more. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Well, we have a little bit different. We have King. It's a different title. We haven't had that yet. Maybe we can underline that. Maybe we can think through that. Who is David? Okay, let's keep going. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Another woman. They don't mention her name this time. Who was that? Bathsheba. So more scandal because David uh, had adultery and then murdered. So here we have that included in the genealogy. Going to the Messiah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. You know, I just like the name Jehoshaphat. So I might just look that up just to see who is this guy. Do, is, do we have him elsewhere in the Bible? I mean, just because I'm curious. That's the observation phase. Maybe we can find something out. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And so here's Josiah over here. He might look up who Josiah is because that's his name. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. Who are his brothers? I actually don't know. But maybe we look that up. Because, again, it's a break in the pattern, isn't it? Are that, is that important? Who are these brothers? At the time of the deportation to Babylon. So again, we're asking ourselves, we're observing. We're observing patterns and breaks in patterns. We aren't answering all the questions. Now, some of them we begin to answer because we look at these breaks and patterns are because of brothers and women. That's pretty cool. That has implications for us. Let's go on. And so after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel. Salathiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiyad. 
Abiyad, the father, I don't know how to say all these names, so on and so forth. Seven, let's go on on to eight. And Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. I don't think you caught it. Did you catch it? What should it have said? Achan, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. And Joseph, the father of... But it doesn't, does it? What does it do? Husband of Mary? What did it just do? Mary. Joseph. Switched it. What implications does that have for some women? And their ideas of their role and their self? This is scandal. In any patriarchal society, first century, they would have caught it immediately. What do you mean, Joseph, not father of Jesus? Husband of Mary. That has implications. That has huge theological implications. Let's go back to what Matthew started. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. This is the Christmas story in a way you have not heard because you weren't paying attention. It's not Joseph, the father of Jesus. It's Joseph, the husband of Mary. Who's the father of Jesus? What? I've never heard this before. This is crazy. This is elevating the status of a woman above her husband. It's not saying anything bad about Joseph, but it's making theological implications. Why is Mary elevated? Who is she? Of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. We have brackets. Started with Jesus the Messiah. It's bracketed with Jesus the Messiah. That might make a difference on how we interpret this section. Starts with a point, ends with a point. It's bracket. And it goes on. And it says, so from all the generations, from Abraham to David, 14. From David to deportation, 14. From the deportation to the Messiah, 14. Do you see what number that is right there? 11, 12. Where's 13 and 14? Do you know that there's not actually 14 generations listed in each of those sections? Could Matthew not count? Why would he say that and not have 14 generations? See, we get hung up on certain things. I do. Now, if you count a deportation as a generation, you can almost get there. Why would he say 14? I don't know. Why? Maybe I look up the number 14. What does 14 mean? In Hebrew, 14 is a number of completion. We have a 14 and a 14 and a 14. A completion of completions. A trinity of completions. You think that might mean something for us theologically? Does this have theological implications for us? How did we get there from asking questions, not just running over it? Oh, boring. It can be boring if we approach it with an attitude of boring. But if we approach it from the attitude that this is the very word of God, it's here for a reason. We might not understand it even now. We, it might not make a difference, but, but 
here, again, does this have theological implications for us as a woman, as a man, as, as who we are, as who we are in Christ, of who Jesus the Messiah is? So again, we go to our scripture reading from 2 Timothy. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Amen? And then Joshua, the book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall be successful. Now, did I see that in Matthew chapter 1 on my own? I wasn't that smart. (laughs) But here's the thing. The more you study scripture, all of a sudden things start to pop up. Why? Why is that there? I think I've seen that before. Why, why is that? I know there's a genealogy. I believe it's in Luke. That genealogy is different than this one. Why would Luke's genealogy be different from Matthew's? You begin to ask yourself the question. Of course, Hebrews could care less about exactness of numbers. Numbers have theology around them. So that's part of what this is. See, this is the thing about studying scripture is that it can be exciting, the sense of discovery. That's, that's what I want from us, this, this joy in the journey with scripture, wrestling with it, wrestling with it in a sense of I don't have the answer now and I might not have it for years. But you know what? That's okay because I'm going to still wrestle. I'm going to still observe it and God will continue to open your eyes to different things. So what's your next step? Good question. We're actually going to be looking at Galatians at the rest of February, not next week, but the week after for three weeks. So Galatians is a small book. You can probably read it in 15, 20 minutes. Maybe you start reading Galatians over and over again just over the next couple of weeks just to kind of get you prepared for what's coming. So then when I preach about Galatians, you can say, you know what, Rick, I don't think you're right on that. Or, you know, I saw it this way instead. That's okay. But how can you have that joy of discovery? That's my prayer for us, that we would have a joy in discovering God's word. Amen? Let's pray.